everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Katherine Kaiser about her new book, Artificial Color, Modern Food and Racial Fictions, published this year by Oxford University Press. Kat is Associate Professor and McCausland Fellow at the University of South Carolina. Kat's research focuses on modern American literature, African-American literature, periodicals, gender, and food. She's also the author of the 2010 book, Playing Smart, New York Women Writers and Modern Magazine Culture, from Rutgers University Press. Artificial Color examines early 20th century fiction and the role that modern food plays in literature as a language for talking about race and racial categories. Katherine Kaiser, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. Yeah, congratulations on the book. It's really excellent. Uh, some of the texts that you analyze there are really familiar to me, like Gene Toomer's Kane, um, Ernest Hemingway's Farewell to Arms, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, but you've really helped me to see them in a new way by focusing on how food works uh, in those particular fictions. Uh, but you've also interest- introduced me to some texts and figures I had never encountered. Uh, the Schuyler family is brand new to me, and I'm excited to hear you talk about them some more. Um, and I knew that Zelda Fitzgerald was a novelist in her own right, but I've, I'll admit I've never gotten a chance to read her work. So I really appreciated those lessons. Well, that's one of the reasons that I found the project so compelling is because the body and what we consume and how we're intermingled with the outside world is so central to modern fiction and how it understands our identity and how it's invested in the body. So it was neat to be able to move from something like Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald that gets taught a great deal to something like Save Me the Waltz by Zelda Fitzgerald, which is this very surreal novel. And to find a way into that through its syrupy, wine-filled idiom. She's like, here we are in the Mediterranean, infused by humidity, infused by booze. Um, and trying to figure out what that means for our sense of ourselves. Yeah, I appreciated that that most of the chapters are kind of set up that way with something kind of a familiar touchstone that you can get started with, and then something perhaps less canonical, less familiar. That was important to me. And also to make some of the writers who people know in a limited capacity, like George Schuyler, um, his satire Black No More is often taught but then his science fiction is much lesser known. So it was fun to be able to make connections between these masterpieces that figure boldly in our classrooms and then some of these stranger, more peripheral figures who suddenly look really important if we're focusing on consumption. Right. So before we get too deep into it, let's start with some background. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and the origins of this book. Where where did the project begin and, and what drew you to the study of food and literature? Well, I mean, to some extent, it is a project of pleasure. My My academic career thus far has followed the things that I get the most enjoyment out of. So my first book was about humor and magazines. I tend to tackle topics that people think of as unserious and then to try to recuperate the urgency of those pleasures. Um, This second project actually came out of a fascinating New Yorker article 
that came out, um, I think in 2010. And it was about flavor factories in North Jersey. And it traced flavor factories back to the 1880s and the 1890s when breakthroughs in organic chemistry made it possible to synthesize a flavor out of nothing, right? That this is not like a brandy soaked in cherries. This is some chemist back in a lab tinkering with molecules. And because that's the period of time that I study, like the 1880s through like loosely 1945, it made me begin to wonder, well, how did writers respond to that idea? That it wasn't just that we were being inundated with radio signals and mass market advertising, but actually the very taste that we were taking into our bodies could be created in a lab and were affected by these industrial changes that had transformed the American landscape. So that was the, the question that my project began with, was how did writers respond to the mediation of that like most intimate of senses, something that you take inside your mouth, that you digest in your stomach? Now, the surprise and what became the compelling reason for the project to exist, the surprise was how tied up all of that language about ingestion, about artificial color was tied up with popular eugenics in the same period. I had always assumed, like most people, that eugenics was primarily about heredity, about um, preserving superior stock. And of course, it usually promulgated a white supremacist point of view. But what I learned when I started looking at this early 20th century history is that all of this talk about blood and heredity was coupled with talk about nutrition and diet. How could you transform your body through what you took inside your body? And it reflected a lot of anxieties for white thinkers, not just about chemicals and artificial flavors and colors, though that as well, but also about these global food maps, which connected what they imagined as an Anglo-Saxon America with, with tropical locales and with addictive substances like cacao and coffee. And so a lot of these eugenicists were really also preoccupied with what we eat. Thanks for that history. I think that's really important. And I, I'm going to ask you to talk about it a little bit more too in a minute. But this channel often focuses on books that are cultural histories of foods. Uh, that's one of my favorite genres is that single food history. Um, and you do bring up a lot of that in our in the book. But um, literary food studies is a little different from that kind of food history. Uh, so I call it literary food studies. But somewhere in the book, you have other names for it, like um, the critical eating studies or the literature of food. So for our listeners who might not be in that uh, academic genre, tell us a little bit about, about literary food studies as a whole. What are the questions? What are the methods? Um, and what draws you to that field? 
Absolutely. I think this is a really exciting moment for literary food studies because we're beginning to understand that narrative, so novels, sometimes poetry, short stories, sci-fi, pulp fiction, all of these forms of literature tell us stories about our place within a global food system and also about the dynamic relationship between our bodies and the non-human that's evidenced by our need to take in calories to consume. This is sometimes the relationship between humans and animals, particularly in fictions about factory farming, but it can also be about the exploitative relationship between people and agriculture. So the relationship between plantation slavery and the production of sugar. And scholars like Keila Wazana Tompkins and Alison Carruth have made a strong argument that I hope my book continues and consolidates that fiction provides us an unparalleled opportunity to see how the imagination can move between these geographies and scales. For example, the history that I just gave you about popular eugenics and white supremacist thought about dietary purity is one prescriptive narrative that defended racial hierarchies, that defended the idea that purity was the best thing. But one of my writers, Gene Toomer, an African-American writer, actually thought about things like artificial color as a metaphor for the idea of a new race to escape racial binaries and racial oppressions by inventing another color. Um, and we'll talk about this later, but for him, that other color was purple, which is a very popular artificial color from the 1920s. But in any case, I hope that example demonstrates that while there is all sorts of messaging floating around us about food, messages from popular science, messages from pedagogy, messages from our doctors, messages from our sense of ourselves as moral beings. Um, but fiction can bring together all of these different ways of seeing food and can simultaneously make us see those messages more clearly and can also push back against them. Like Gene Toomer saying, purity is not what we should be aiming for. Beauty and transcendence is. Yeah, the, the writers and the works that you examine are really quite diverse. They're, they're African-American, they're Jewish, they're other forms of Euro-American, they're mixed race. They come from the North, they come from the South, they <laughs> live in Harlem, they're for living in Paris, uh, but they all eventually settle on food and food technology as a common language to talk about things that are kind of unspeakable, kind of really difficult to discuss, um, that permeable and artificial boundary of, of race. Why do you think food is such a powerful symbol in fiction? What about it makes it so useful to writers um, and meaningful to readers? I think 
one of the reasons that food is such a useful symbol is that it's more than symbolic, right? So much of my personal day is driven by food from my cup of coffee in the morning to the tacos for dinner that I'm already fantasizing about. This is one form of physical desire that has to be met every single day. And if it isn't met every single day, it's still a source of preoccupation. And eating also gives the lie to our fantasy that is born of enlightenment thinking and Cartesian philosophy, right? We have a tendency in Western culture to imagine that we're individuals, that we're self-contained bodies, and also that the body is driven by the mind. Food and eating give the lie to that fantasy. And I argue in the book that it opens up possibilities of new ways of relating to the world. Like once we give up that fantasy of being a self-contained body, then so many other forms of ecological and interpersonal intimacy become possible. Right. And that, that intimacy and permeability of food also uh, is a good way to enter into conversations about anxieties over race and racial mixing that are, are really heavy in the book and in this uh, period of, uh, of literature that you're interested in. Absolutely. And actually, that's really an important point to note. When I was describing what literature does with the food system, um, I described it in very positive terms, right? That tumor, for example, takes in all of these messages from mass culture and presses against it and comes up with a more utopian or positive way of understanding food. But it would be misleading to suggest that that's what my book is exclusively about. And I'm equally interested in what terrors or maybe anxieties is a better word, what anxieties about modern life are revealed through the way that we relate to food. So as much as I think that in Hemingway's fiction, for example, I find his desire for transnational connection through connoisseurship, I find that very appealing. But at the same time, I am convinced that his emphasis on food's simplicity and purity is, is driven by deeper anxieties about cultural intermixing, industrialization, globalization, and war. So as much as Hemingway may think, oh, good, I get to go to Basque country and then I'll eat this perfect sausage, and then I'll be cosmopolitan. At the same time, the way that he relates to food shows how frightened he is of contamination. Right, that's something I picked up on as I was reading too. And and maybe that's what I think about the modern era uh, of literature and sort of culture is permeated by a sense of anxiety. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe um, maybe let's start with that historical context. Uh, you've already alluded to a little bit about eugenics. Um, 
what are some of those theories about race or anxieties about race that are swirling around at the moment that the writers you look at are responding to? So one of the primary concerns that comes up in the book is how will industrial food affect racialized bodies? So eugenicist thinkers like Madison Grant became convinced that not only was the Anglo-Saxon superior, but he was also fragile through his superiority. So they dealt with their anxieties, their xenophobia about immigration um, by also inflaming this vision that Mediterraneans and Asiatics, and I'm, you know, I'm using their terminology here, that they are small brunettes who would be able to eat anything, right? No matter what kind of terrible direct you were creating in a factory to feed them, they would still thrive. But Anglo-Saxon masculinity required an infusion of meat and dairy and would die out under these conditions of modern food production. So that's one of the um, major coordinates of eugenicist thinking about nutrition that comes up in my study. Another one I've already alluded to briefly, but it was the fascination with tropical goods and also the anxiety that those tropical goods were unhealthy for the Anglo-Saxon body, that they would be both addictive and also vitiating that much like the industrial food that was so frightening, so too would tropical goods like bananas and coffee and sugarcane be really poisonous for the Anglo-Saxon man. Now, the third coordinate in terms of this popular science about nutrition and white supremacy was the movement called the physical culture movement. Now, This was also an exercise movement, but I focus on its dietary angle. And the physical culture movement also responded to anxieties about industrialization and insisted on sort of fighting back through a physical regimen. So one of the diets that I end up taking up in my study is this insistence that raw food could resuscitate the mightiness of primeval man. And this is something that white supremacists promulgated, the raw food, uh, raw milk kind of fantasy of raw masculinity. And I hope it's clear from that description how close this is to a lot of contemporary thinking Um, like the paleo diets and the raw foodists. But in any case, in my study, I see also how this fantasy of raw food as a way of resisting modernity and all of modernity's negative effects on the body and diet, um, this gets repurposed across the color line as sci-fi writer George Schuyler and his wife Josephine Cogdell Schuyler Uh, basically write self-help columns for black press magazines saying you should eat raw foods because one of the ways 
that oppression happened during slavery was that nutrition was so poor. And now if you eat raw foods, you can recuperate the strength that belongs to the ancient, the ancient African. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, the book is divided into chapters, each one focusing on a couple of closely related authors and texts. And you've kind of talked about that relationship already. Um, and that they're linked by their common use of food for plot devices, for imagery, or um, for metaphor, each one kind of shedding some light on how that food carried meanings of racial identity. And you also kind of uncover the historical context around that food that today's readers probably don't have access to or that the meanings have changed over time. Um, so you're helping us to see what, what those foods might have meant to the writers and their contemporary readers. Uh, so let's start with the chapter from uh, about Gene Toomer's cane. It seems like obvious choice for that would be sugar, but you're, you're highlighting his use of, of soda, soda pop, syrup, um, images of effervescence. And you've already kind of talked about that as a metaphor for this inevitable racial intermixing. What's that role of soda in, in 20th century culture? Well, soda is a fascinatingly modern invention. I mean, because we all live in the age of soft drink ascension, right? We all live in the age of um, high fructose corn syrup and connections between soft drinks and obesity. It's hard to imagine that there was even a time when soda was an emergent technology instead of the reigning one. Um, and one of the interesting things about soda is that it began as a kind of patent remedy. It began as a pharmacist's promise to um, solve your indigestion and put some pep back in your step. And it was associated because um, both Coke and Pepsi started in the South. It was in so associated with the industrialization of the South at the end of the 19th century. Um, the reason that I find it so interesting in the modern period is that it was connected with the soda fountain, which Gene Toomer, for one, connects with the alchemist's workshop because they're a soda jerk and he, he worked in a soda fountain a soda jerk could put together carbonated water with sugar syrup, with color, and could make something completely new and something that would animate your senses, um, not just through caffeine, though certainly through caffeine, but also through that tingle on your palate and also through the look of it and through the sweetness of it. So soda becomes this symbol of the new intensity that's made possible by modern culture. And I found it really fascinating to, to excavate that moment when it feels a little bit like magic. What's the connection between the soda fountain and then these ideas of race? Well, there's an obvious connection between the soda fountain and the idea of race because of um, the long history of segregated soda fountains. So in spite of the fact that soda fountains were ostensibly desegregated in Washington, D.C., 
in fact, there was de facto segregation in these spaces. Um, so some thinkers like James Weldon Johnson and Langston Hughes alluded to the soda, soda fountain as a symbol of how black bodies were um, policed and excluded in the modern period. Now, that's not what Gene Toomer does. And that's simultaneously really problematic and totally fascinating. So it's really problematic that this light-skinned African-American man was espousing that a new race could be invented. He says that because um, there's no biological reality to the one-drop rule, because you can't quantify bloods, um, that you might as well invent a totally new race and throw away the system of racial apartheid. And of course, that's both a really exciting idea and also it's something much easier for light-skinned gene tumor who could and eventually did pass for white. It's much easier for him to say that than it would be for a phenotypically black man to say, oh, let's, let's overthrow it all and declare a new race for ourselves. But I do find it really um, powerful that Gene Toomer looked at soda and its aesthetic possibilities, its sensuousness, and connected that with art, particularly modernist art, which tends to be very experimental. And then that he connected those two with our whole social system. He was basically saying, we shouldn't just assume that everything has to be this way. We should actually take the malleability of materials and bodies as our ideal for our social system, which should be equally malleable. Yeah. So thinking about that kind of future looking <laughs> way of thinking about race, it leads me to kind of the next chapter on the, the Schuyler family. Um, George Schuyler, you've already mentioned as a speculative fiction writer, uh, but tell us more about this family. Who are these people? They're, they're interesting both as writers and public figures, but who are they? Oh, they really are. So um, George Schuyler was a famous columnist for the Pittsburgh Courier, um, a black intellectual. He eventually um, goes to the hard right. So he's sort of a notorious bugbear of the African-American literary tradition. He married um, the daughter of a Texas rancher family, so white Josephine Cogdell Schuyler, who became very invested in racial uplift, and she wrote under pseudonyms for black press magazines, usually advice columns about love and diet for African-American women. They had a mixed-race daughter named Philippa Schuyler, and sometimes their language about her sounded a little bit like she was a eugenics project. 
uh, Josephine Schuyler, who, who went by Jody, indicated once that Anglo-Saxons needed to be reinvigorated by black blood. And so she had a kind of utopian fantasy about mixed race. However, in most of their interviews, and there were a ton of them because they really publicized their daughter's accomplishments, in most of their interviews, both George and Jody insisted that their daughter was a child prodigy who could read at four and play the piano and write her own compositions uh, because she had been raised on raw foods, on quote, a scientific diet since infancy. So what, let's start with the fiction uh, of George Schuyler. What kinds of speculative food technologies show up in that fiction and how do they relate to ideas about racial identity? I focus on his serial science fiction that he wrote under the pseudonym of Samuel Brooks. And there were sort of two runs of it. One is um, Black International and one is Black Empire. And this was a very popular science fiction series about a Black ubermensch who manages to overthrow white supremacy and take over the world. And Schuyler privately said that this was the worst kind of race chauvinism. So he seemed to really disclaim the ideas that were central to this science fiction, except that this science fiction had a lot of the agricultural and dietary ideals that both he and his wife espoused elsewhere in their journalism. So in the first installments, one of his ideas is that the Black International will gain wealth by growing hydroponic vegetables in their underground layers, and that their tomatoes and their strawberries raised in pure hydroponic baths would be so enormous that they would flood the market and effectively topple the kind of agricultural economy of that period. So that's the first real section of food fantasy in the text. And I write in the book um, how close it is to the kinds of food fantasies that were being popularized in things like the Heinz Pavilion at the New York World's Fair, which was also displaying its ability to produce hydroponic tomatoes. The other big section in this serial about food technology was about raw foods. And we think, perhaps intuitively, that raw foods is like a back-to-nature movement that we can escape modern technology but Schuyler instead emphasizes that it's a science diet produced in a spotless industrial kitchen, um, all white, right? This is the period where the white kitchen becomes popular. And also that raw food can be stopped from spoiling through a state-of-the-art electrified refrigerator, also a pretty new technology, and a deep freezer, which will preserve this vitality. And that was a really important word, 
both for Schuyler and for food science more broadly, that these foods would stay underground in Liberia in a deep freeze and thus would lose none of this nutritive power and could restore racial power to black men all over the globe. Right. So the you describe it in the book as really highlighting this intersection between gender and race, um, that the body, especially of the female mixed race body, is sort of this futuristic, um, I don't know, the, the site for, pro- for progress, right? That the, the female mulatta is going to be the future. So say a little bit more about that. What does the future look like for women in the fiction, but especially for mixed race women? What a great question. Um, One of the things I discovered while researching this project is that the figure of the tragic mulata has long had this resonance with botanical sciences. Um, This idea that racial intermixture is akin to botanical hybridity and that the mulata isolated in a kind of Edenic garden space could be the embodiment of the best kind of femininity. And usually in the 19th century, this kind of fable of the potential of hybridity coincides with the Garden of Eden thing. Like once she leaves the Garden of Eden, it's all over and she's ravished and destroyed. Um, This kind of fiction has an afterlife in progressive era fiction about light-skinned African-American women. Um, In Iola Leroy, for example, the mixed-race woman demonstrates her virtue and maintains her purity by joining the temperance movement and being very careful about what she consumes. Um, By the time of Schuyler's fiction, the mixed-race woman becomes a lot like the strawberry or the giant tomato (laughs) in the underground layers in the science fiction. Like very titillating, very beautiful, created intentionally and preserved in purity. So she can't be consumed. She can only be admired. Now, in the first run of the serial, the mixed-race woman, Pat, ends the serial by marrying the main character. And so she ceases to be the sort of um, show strawberry in the hydroponic garden. And her characterization is transformed in the second installment, where suddenly, instead of being luminous, instead of being the embodiment of the modern possibilities of rational intermixture, now she's sort of glued onto the ideal of new Negro womanhood, which was also, as Shireen Sherrard Johnson has argued, typically... Um, a light-skinned icon. But the new Negro woman was important during the Harlem Renaissance, not primarily for her independent achievements, 
but rather for her support of the new Negro man who needed her to protect the purity, the healthfulness of the domestic sphere um, so that he could go out and achieve professionally and fight against the racism in the public sphere. And I think that's why the big futuristic science device in the first serial is this exciting subterranean botanical experiment, um, this, this Eden with giant strawberries. But in the second serial, it's the pure kitchen, right? That the new Negro woman needs to learn to cook or rather not cook <laughs> scientifically to give her child the right raw foods diet and thus to contribute to the next generation's um, healthful survival. So make that final connection then between the fictional mixed race woman and then the real life figure of, of Philippa Schuyler. What eventually happens to her? Oh, it's, it is really a sad story. I mean, uh, to some extent, it seems overdetermined, right, for child prodigies of all kinds. Her parents put her very much in the public eye for her diet and for her achievements on the piano. But while they raised her on raw foods, they also tried to hide from her the realities of Jim Crow America, which, of course, came crashing down on her in her preteen years when she began to tour the country playing piano and was confronted with these racial divides and also became aware that her mother's white family in Texas refused to meet her. So I find it fascinating the way that their fantasy that they could keep her innocent of race in America coincides with their fantasy of raw food, that they could give her something packed with the ideal nutrients. I mean, again, this kind of Edenic fruit idea, right? They protect her from sugar, which is not only um, obviously unhealthful, right? Refined sugar in industrial food, but it's also an emblem of plantation slavery. It's like they're going to somehow protect her from this traumatic history that, of course, it's impossible to protect her from. Um, so in her late adolescence, um, she decides to pass for white. She's very angry when her father wants to publish her story in a collection of the stories of um, remarkable African-Americans. She says he's, he's going to basically out me. Um, she writes to her mother, you can't let him do this and destroy my life again. And ultimately, um, she was drowned in Vietnam when she was um, there as a journalist. So in, in disturbing ways, her life narrative ends up mirroring the narrative convention of the tragic mulata. That's fascinating. <laughs> uh, the next part of the book, you kind of turn to white writers. Um, the next chapter on, on Hemingway and Stein. I have to admit my first foodie moment 
uh, was reading a movable feast in high school in West Texas. There's this scene where he's eating raw oysters and drinking white wine and writing in a cafe. And I could not imagine anything so very distant from my own life. (laughs) (laughs) And raw oysters. There's an unavoidable glamour to it. Yeah, I wanted it. I wanted to have that life. <laughs> well, and I one of my arguments is that Hemingway wants you to want it, right? He he wants it so badly. He's constantly modeling that he knows the right taste of things. You know, the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu writes about how we use food to model class distinction. And for Hemingway, that extends from class distinction to um, cosmopolitan European belonging. He really wants to show that he's much savvier than your typical American who he se- he tends to characterize in these caricatured ways. Yeah, it made me think a lot about that link between local food and, and authenticity and the sort of white Euro-Americans um, need to uh, kind of consume ethnic cultures, uh, get as close to the real thing as they can as a part of their identity building. Absolutely. I mean, Keila Wazana Tompkins writes that local foods can be a metaphor for nativist thought, right? for the idea that um, the race that was born in a place is the race that ought to belong there so that raising human bodies and raising crops has an uncanny echo. Um, But that's even more complicated in this case, right? Because what fascinates Hemingway are um, groups that contemporary Americans might not even think of as racial categories. And because of globalization and also the consolidation of the discipline of geography, there was a real fascination in the teens and 20s about mapping Europe and determining what the primary races were of Europe. And of course, this has a direct genealogical relationship to the rise of fascism in Europe in the 30s. But some of it really trickles into what's effectively tourist literature. And so the pursuit of a rare vintage, the discussion of goat herds on a mountainside um, ends up intersecting with the search for people who are not as migratory as modern man, for people who come from peasant stock and ancient lineage. So a lot of allusions to the classics there. And I found that really surprising and fascinating. I did not actually know about all of that sort of touristic literature that promised you that you could go find the foods of the region and also the peasants of the region who like would never have left there and were the purest version of their race. Yeah, and yet it doesn't seem too far off from how we think about that same kind of food tourism today. No, it's absolutely right. Um, because it's a it's a condescending racial fantasy as well that conflates 
bodies of locals with a kind of um, purity, authenticity, existence outside of time. And it's, it's to give, to give Hemingway his due, Hemingway actually kind of realizes how crazy this quest is to find these people who never go anywhere and who are only defined by their um, ethnic connections in a hyper-local way. When his character, Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises, meets the Basques, who seem to be this perfect emblem of racial purity and food authenticity and viticulture. Like the first guy he meets is like, oh yeah, I've been to America. You guys have prohibition there. That's a terrible idea. So Hemingway, with his persistent sense of irony, is even exploding his own fantasy like while he puts it out there. Yeah, and, and for Gertrude Stein, you really focus on images of foraging, mostly mushrooms, and gleaning as something that's simultaneously French and Jewish and peasant and authentic. Uh, what's the significance of that mushroom imagery in Stein's poetry? I'm so glad you asked. It's possibly my favorite part of the book um, is writing about Stein and mushroom hunting. And one of the reasons that I find foraging so fascinating as a metaphor for ecological enmeshment and local belonging is that it opens up this possibility of becoming a local, um, of coming to a space over and over and over again, um, recognizing the signs that there are going to be mushrooms where you are. And for Stein, this was a really potent fantasy, the idea that she could become um, one of the locals in rural France. I mean, again, she ironizes this, or excuse me, Toklas ironizes this, um, because after Stein gathers all of these mushrooms, you know, the sort of um, the chef at a local hotel, a French woman who's from there is kind of looking through the basket of mushrooms, like making sure that these American ladies are not about to kill themselves. But I, I really find something very appealing about that idea of um, this earthiness and also this, um, this sensuous relationship to what we often think of as the sort of seamy or grimy or decay-filled part of a place. This is really not identical with the rural picturesque, right? You can't have distance from the soil to be mushroom hunting. And it's paired up in a fascinating way with the idea of gleaning, um, with the idea that a village, once it has harvested all of the wheat that it needs, should leave what's still there for the vagabond, for the needy to make their own livelihood out of what's left. And 
I think that's a really potent metaphor for what we owe other people. And I really thought, you know, circling back to your teenage fantasy of uh, quaffing oysters and drinking white wine with Hemingway, for Hemingway, to be a connoisseur is to embody a certain kind of physical discipline and a perfect palate. It's an exclusive ideal. And I like the idea that gleaning and mushroom hunting create a queerer, messier ideal of belonging to a place where you weren't born, of coming to be affiliated. I mean, sadly, in Stein's case, ultimately, her sense that she's been adopted by the rural French um, allows her to indulge in the bad faith of supporting the Vichy regime. So one of the things that I found again and again in this project is that often ideals that I find or metaphors that I find to be very beautiful, potentially producing ecological restraint and um, even social justice or new kinds of community affiliations. Um, often these come up against racial regimes and fascist trajectories, and they just become like a toxic form of nostalgia. So what I'm really hoping is that my readings of these moments recuperate some of those aesthetic and social possibilities, like recuperates what's really amazing about transnational mushroom hunting, <laughs> um, while still acknowledging that this is not where this ended, right? That um, Stein indulged in the worst possible denial, like mm. as, as a Jewish woman in France during the Holocaust that she could say, but really I belong to my French village is, is very upsetting. Yeah. I think the next chapter on the Fitzgeralds uh, kind of highlights more of that kind of disgusting side. And I use that word on purpose. You talk a lot about uh, disgust and how that uh, intersects between food and race and identity and gender. Um, both of those novels from both of the Fitzgeralds center on the south of France and the Mediterranean. And you've talked a little bit about this already, but um, in this chapter, you really talk about the popular idea about geography and race at the time. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that, that theory of like the global north and the global south and how they intersect with race? Absolutely. Um... So there was a real effort to divide the globe climatologically and to associate the Anglo-Saxon or the Nordic with um, cold weather. This actually extended to some eugenicists saying, like, really, we should get all of our sugar from beets because that's going to be more healthful for the Nordic body than sugarcane. 
Um, and then this sort of sense of southerliness of the Mediterranean of the U.S. South as defined by humidity, stickiness, and brownness. Um, and often there was a connection made between Mediterranean and African sloth. This was one of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's xenophobic fixations was that there was this laziness, this degeneration, but matched with like sexual irresistibility. So the, the slothful sexy coming out of the global South from Africa to the Mediterranean and then stealing white women from worthy Nordics. Um, and he, he famously wrote about this in a letter to Edmund Wilson, not the thing about stealing women, but rather um, that France now has the soul of, um, I believe he uses the word Negro, but he might use Blackamore. Um, and so one of the anxieties that gets troped in both sex and sort of sugar is that this sticky southernness is going to seep up the globe and through the bodies of white women who are going to drink too much coffee and who are also going to have sex with the wrong guys. Right. And both of those novels have that plot device of the white female character running off with uh, a local browner character. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Yeah. yeah, so what does what effect does going south have on the white male versus the white female in both of these novels? In the in Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night, the white man paralyzed by the sloth of the Mediterranean, this humidity that he can't move in that saps his genius and his industry. He becomes fatter. And of course, during the modern period, slenderness, or for men, muscularity, was a symbol of your ability to remake your body into a tool for discipline and reason. Um, so this idea that the white man would get fat in the Mediterranean is forcing the white man back into his body in a way that's humiliating. Um, and in addition, there's this rhetoric of addiction. So one eugenicist account of addiction was that it went with inferior stock, right, and circulated with inferior stock. But there was actually another narrative that Fitzgerald seems clearly to have been familiar with. There was another narrative that the Nordic or the Celt who was also at this point imagined to be white and superior, even though the Irish had not been white for decades. The Irish had made white by this time. Um, and the idea was that these superior beings were more vulnerable to alcohol, were more vulnerable to drugs, and that thus 
in this cultural moment where they weren't being, you know, fed by their genius, where the Mediterranean man and the Levantine was closing in on all sides. Um, then you get these fat, addicted white men who don't live up to their potential. And you can, of course, I mean, not to belabor the biographical, but you can, of course, see why for Fitzgerald as an alcoholic, why this narrative might appeal to him, right? Like the more that I fall apart, the more it evidences how pure and white I am and how terrible the rest of the modern world is because it is poisoning me. And by contrast, in Tender is the Night, um, the women are invigorated by Mediterranean wine, by um, South American coffee. It all just makes them stronger and sexier and more difficult to resist. But it also then, if they're consuming all of these dark liquids, and that's the kind of metaphorics that tend to be used here, if they're consuming all of these dark liquids, then they're also open to miscegenation. So they won't reproduce like a perfectly white next generation. And tellingly, Nicole Diver, the wife in Tender is the Night, has a daughter named Topsy, uh, which is playing with this idea of the racialization of whiteness. Now, one of the things I find really fabulous about pairing Save Me the Waltz by Zelda Fitzgerald with Tender as the Night by F. Scott is that Zelda, um, partly because she's a woman and she perceives that women's sexuality is sort of always impure, always oozing, um, and partly because she's from the U.S. South, which was associated with tropicality and blackness, she never feels like she can live up to white purity. So in her protagonist, Alabama Beggs, she creates a character who is drawn to the humid South, who eats collard greens and um, it grows up with black mammies. And um, so she feels insufficiently white, but this also allows Zelda Fitzgerald to critique the fantasy of whiteness as a fantasy of coldness and purity of um, anhedonia and self-control. So Alabama tries to become a ballet dancer and she sees the body of a woman who is, who is dancing ballet and she compares her to um, what she calls blue blood ice cream. So she imagines that New England Nordic stock was combined with cream and frozen and then created this perfect anorexic balletic body which is one of the best, most bizarre and off-putting images that I encountered in my research. And so Alabama sets herself this syrupy, tan, southern body, the task of trying to become just like blue blood ice cream. And needless to say, she fails. 
And the way that she fails, I think, um, reveals a lot about these binaries, which are racialized between the solid, the pure, the white, the cold, on the one hand, and the syrupy, the contaminated, the brown, the wet, on the other hand. And for my money, the syrupy and the brown ends up coming off much better in Save Me the Waltz, in spite of all of Zelda's anxieties that that is unhealthful, that she's drawn to all of those categories because of something that's deeply wrong with her. In the last chapter, uh, you return back to some African-American writers, Zora Neale Hurston and Dorothy West. Um, both of those women worked for the WPA America Eats Project, um, interviewing people about African-American foodways. Uh, what else do these writers have in common? These writers are both interested in what the globalized food system means for Black populations around the world. Um, and they both recognize the vulnerability of Black bodies in a global food regime that relies on their labor and that often treats them as expendable, which you can see in the hurricane in Their Eyes Were Watching God. But they're also really interested in how food can become a symbol of Black diaspora, of interconnection, and of resilient community. It was very satisfying to end with these two writers because they really do change the terms of the rest of the study. Um, that the African-American writers that I deal with in earlier chapters are each hoping that you could come up with a new technology or a new diet that would get rid of um, stigmas connected with blackness. The white writers are really um, panicked about racial contamination, but they're also longing for a kind of belonging that they don't find through the loose and baggy category of whiteness. Um, so to some extent, all of the writers up until this point in the project are, are blinkered in some way about the ramifications, the political ramifications of what they're writing. But Zora Neale Hurston and Dorothy West are both really aware that they're writing about social systems, racial hierarchies, and environmental justice. And they both, I argue, have kind of a, a Black feminist vision of what it means to use food to write back against racial regimes. They both also have in common the, the figure of the black grocer, the uh, the kind of small business owner who's also playing in this global capitalist industrial agriculture system. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so kind of talk about how, how race and gender are complicated by class mobility 
and that white dominated capitalism in both novels. Well, this is sort of a, a satisfying build on what we were discussing earlier about how the potential of the mixed race woman gets domesticated and sidelined in Schuyler's fiction. And indeed, even in rearing his daughter, the fantasy of the pure prodigy just kind of can't live through adolescence, right? Eventually, the, the child prodigy is an adult and will have to make erotic and dietary choices of her own. And um, Schuyler really wasn't prepared for that. And as a result, he left his daughter, Philippa, not prepared for that. Um, West and Hurston are really satisfying to me because they debunk a fantasy of emancipation that is based in entrepreneurship and capitalist ownership. So both of them, as you say, take this figure of the black grocer. Jody Starks, in their eyes, were watching God. Um, he believes that because he has this general store, he is going to be able to compete, basically, with the kind of models of white power that he's seeing out in the world. Um, and as Sadia Hartman has written about so beautifully, uh, capitalism is also racist. So this kind of modern, and this was like a very common fantasy um, in the modern period, this idea that capital could be colorblind and that the black grocer was going to materialize the hopes of the race through his constantly expanding property. Um, ultimately, both Hurston and West debunk that. The black grocer in West's novel, The Living is Easy, he ultimately goes bankrupt because his fruit import business um, can't compete with the white chains that conspire um, against him, basically, and get better bank loans. So there's a whole racialized system that balks his vision of equality through money. And both Hurston and West are pretty, um, they don't mince words in indicating that the acquisition of property will never be able to undo racial hierarchies, that, that capitalism and the food industry are rigged even for these men who think of themselves as owners who are going to remake themselves in the model of kind of white neo-imperialists. Can I ask you one last question? How does this material show up in your teaching? Do you, do you talk to students about kind of the histories of foods and what they're reading? Where does this fit into the kinds of uh, courses that you teach? Well, I've been very fortunate at the University of South Carolina because I have been given a great deal of latitude to teach in my specialty. So I've actually taught uh, one course called Fast and Slow Foods in Modern American Literature. So that's trying to think through this tension between technological novelty and um, agrarian nostalgia in early 20th century lit. 
Um, I also, though, think that these connections between agricultural production and racial hierarchies, between eating imaginaries and fantasies of purity or the promises of intermixture can be taught to a much wider student audience. So I have developed um, a lecture course that I taught two years ago um, that is a broad survey of 20th century American literature from like the works of Charles Chestnut writing about plantation slavery and food to contemporary sci-fi by Paolo Bacigalupi about um, basically genetically modified seeds and the corporate patenting of seeds. And it was really great. You know, I had, I had students here in the Carolinas coming up to me and talking about their family histories, running small farms and ultimately being shunted out uh, by corporate farms, buying up the properties around them. It is not an exaggeration to say that we are all connected by food. And reading literature about eating, about food, reminds us of our ethical obligation to the planet and to each other, and also reminds us about how many desires um, for particular foods, for our family's kitchen, um, desires and memories that we share um, that in turn connect us through the stories that we tell. Absolutely. What, what project are you working on next? I am really excited. I am working on a project about seeds. Um, it was born out of a lecture I had the great pleasure of giving at Princeton last spring about food justice and fiction. And I noticed... And I write about it a little bit in the book, but it's going to be a bigger part of the new project that after all of the catastrophes have gone down in their eyes, we're watching God after the hurricane has ravaged the landscape, after her lover has died, after she's been um, held on trial, Janie finds hope in a packet of seeds that she has saved. And I'm really interested both in the material practice of gardening as a creation of hope. And I'm also interested in the way that seeds circulate in African-American literature as a metaphor for diasporic identity and for political resistance. So that's going to be my next project. Stay tuned <laughs> for, you know, seeds and gardens and uh, diasporic African-American literature. That is really exciting. And when it's done, you'll have to come back. We'll have to talk about that for sure. Oh, thanks so much, Carrie. Yeah. So we've been talking with Katherine Kaiser about her new book, Artificial Color, Modern Food and Racial Fictions, available with Oxford University Press. Thanks so much, Kat, for talking with me today. Thank you. It's been a real joy. Thank you.